Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I'm pleased to say that we're joined by one of the sharpest minds in global economics now, Catherine Mann, the City Global Chief Economist. Catherine, fantastic to have you with us on a day like this morning. Let's just start with a basic question. What are you looking for from this payrolls report in 90 minutes' time? Well, I tell you, you know, this is a case where everybody's looking for the report, but I'm looking beyond the report. Um, because I think at this point for the markets, it's pretty much all priced in and it's all about um, where we're going to go from here. Uh, I think the elements going forward in the near term that are most uh, relevant are how long do the furloughs last? How long uh, do they turn in? Uh, at what point do they might be turned into firings? That's are there any strange quirks in this me. particular report, Catherine, like wages that we should ignore, pay less attention to? I think that actually there are a lot of things in this report that are not really going to be representative of the challenge going forward of restarting the economy. So, I mean, I, I, you know, it's, it's, news, it's news that hasn't happened yet because it hasn't been announced. But at this point, it's old news. And we've got to move on to thinking about what we're going to do. What are the numbers going to look like? What are the trajectories going to look like uh, about getting the economy back on track? When you talk about getting the economy back on track, uh, U.S. markets seem to have already moved past the catastrophic report. And you were quoted in a story today talking about this massive divide, this disconnect between uh, stock markets that continue to rally, the NASDAQ now positive on the year, and Mm -hmm. the bleakest economic reports in history. You don't think it can last. Why not? Uh, no, I don't. I mean, at, at some point, either the market, uh, either the uh, fundamentals catch up to the markets, or the markets uh, come down to the fundamentals. And and of course, the reason why they're so disconnected is because there has been a tremendous amount of policy support put forward to underpin uh, the financial markets, in particular. That's for the Fed's uh, broad set of programs. They actually haven't done much yet. I mean, they've just sort of given forward guidance of the market variety, market guidance. Um, but And there's also a lot of uh, funding, you know, on the fiscal side as well. So the markets are sort of saying, we know all that. It's going gonna, it's gonna to work out. So we're looking to 2021. Dr. I, Mann, that's when it, yeah, I think that's when they're going to uh, be, you know, we're, they were going to be surprised in later on in the year. Dr. Mann, good morning. I look out of my abode yeah. here and I can look over and wave to Columbia University and the wonderful laureate Edmund Phelps. Mm, and there yeah. can be phrases like Nehru, output gap, and all these other stuff. And it devolves down to John Williams' modern Kent, which is our starred. As we mm. go into this report and as we come out of it, do we have a clue where our starred is? Well, you know, uh, I'm interested, you say, uh, the neighbor, the output gap, our star. I put them all into the category of we don't observe them. They are all estimates and uh, they move over time. And so sort of thinking that any of them are your North Star is really a bad way of thinking about things because they are not a North Star. They don't, uh, you know, they're they're not changeless. Uh, We should not be guided by them because they are so, uh, in this moment in particular, so affected by uh, underlying data uh, that we really have to go at, look at much more microeconomic analysis, micro data, higher yeah. frequency data. What does the micro data say about wage dynamics here? Or will it take you a month or two or three to really get an understanding of the dis- disinflationary tendency expected? So there's a lot of uh, 
you know, there's a lot of challenges here because, uh, sure, there's a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of unemployment going to be coming out of this report. Um, it is broad-based, although there's, there's higher intensity in some sectors than others. But going forward, the question to me is, is when the economy starts to reopen and people start to go back out uh, to, we call this going back out to play. Of course, people work at restaurants, but there are a lot of people who play. And by going out to restaurants, it's at the theater and sporting events and, and travel and tourism and so forth. When people do that, what are the rules of engagement uh, by companies? Um, do they only have half as many tables, no middle seat, uh, half as many tickets in the theater? Under those situations, you, you have a very interesting dynamic because you don't need as many people um, and you still have to you know, make a profit. Uh, otherwise, you're going to go out of business. So how does that translate into prices that people have to pay? So the disconnect between wages and prices could actually get bigger. Catherine, I'd like to talk about what's about to happen with interest rates as well and the difference between mm -hmm. now and what we saw after the last crisis. After the last crisis, it took a long time for people to figure out rates weren't going up anytime soon. I don't think two-year rates actually bottomed out until 2011. As you look at things right now, is this a market that's accepted that reality, that rates are going to remain low for a whole lot longer from here? So... I think that the market definitely thinks that rates are going to stay extremely low. Um, and in some sense, they, they, they know this now for sure because uh, of the range of uh, Fed programs that have been put into place. But they even knew that um, when the Fed pivoted last year after the December 2018 debacle. So, you know, the markets uh, know for sure that the Fed is uh, so far away from monetary policy normalization that they know that there's a put on um, practically every single asset in the portfolio. Well, a put is a different thing than necessarily going negative. And right now we're seeing yeah. traders uh, ah. bet that the Federal Reserve will take rates negative, despite the fact that the no. FOMC has said repeatedly that it will not do so. Do you think that this is a disconnect, that the market is in for a rude awakening and that Fed officials will come out and reiterate their stance against negative rates? Or do you think that the Fed is going to have its hand forced yet again by the market? So uh, I think uh, so. perhaps uh, the market is taking a, a cue from uh, negative uh, WTI, right? Uh, nobody thought that oil prices could go negative either. Um, so there are policy rates that could go negative, and, and the FOMC has said, no, we're not going to do that. That's not the same thing as the market taking market-determined rates negative, right? There's a distinction between the two. Okay, there's a distinction, but you know, there was a headline today. UBS is getting a lot of uh, uh, a response from their their customers. They're not going to play in the negative rate space. You know, they're just not going to participate in this. Ken Rogoff and the late Marvin Goodfriend would suggest we need to see a greater magnitude, a greater courage, Doctor Man, of affecting negative rates. Do we need a more bold negative rate policy, or is it a failed policy? To me, negative negative rates is, is not uh, it's not appropriate. I mean, th this is not a situation where we need negative rates. There's plenty of credit available. Um, it's going into the financial markets. The challenge is it's not going from financial markets to the real economy. That's the disconnect. And negative interest rates won't help that. Catherine, appreciate your time this morning. A history-making day on this payrolls Friday. Catherine Mann, there, City Global Chief Economist. 
So Bloomberg survey changes day to day depending on the mix of opinions we get. And we've sort of migrated it casually from 20 to 21 out to 22 uh, million with an update. Ellen Zentner of Morgan Stanley. Ellen, I, I know that John and Lisa have all sorts of current questions about 8.30. What have you learned in May, the short days of May that we've had, about what we will see in the June, the July, or the August report? Can you take this out further as we have taken out weekly claims? Yeah, it's a good question, Tom. Um, so we should be looking ahead. I mean, any of these numbers that are just absolutely shocking should not uh, surprise me one. And as we continue to get April data, it's it's largely um, backward looking because states are yeah. starting to open up. They're opening up to limited capacity, uh, but they're opening up. And so you're going to be pulling some people back into the labor market very slowly here as we're in May. And I'll tell you some of the best highest, uh, the best high frequency data, at least that we have at Morgan Stanley, are these weekly alpha wise surveys of roughly 2000 households where we could already see in April that they were starting to look forward to a better day, to opening. Financial expectations had stopped declining and started rising. Uh, and so people are looking forward to a better day. Just what is that better day going to look like? But we do know that the worst of the data is past us, even though we're getting confirmation of just how bad it was now. How will the urgency of our politics change off of the stark numbers at 830? So I think it's certainly going to make the argument uh, for continued uh, expanded fiscal support uh, greater, um, even though uh, some policymakers will assume that this is already um, at this this kind of bad data was already accounted for in the fiscal support that's been passed. But, you know, if we are going to look ahead, you know, to the day when, say, the $600 weekly supplemental checks start to uh, fade. So those that were the first to claim, that would start happening in July. In July, the unemployment rate is still going to be extraordinarily high. Um, there will be some states in July that, that may not have a fully, fully reopen. Uh, and so you can imagine cries from households that how can you pull this support out from under me when the unemployment rate is still very high and I don't even have the opportunity to look for a job. And so uh, our public policy strategists don't think we're done uh, with fiscal support. That means a roughly $3 trillion in support we've passed already will continue to rise, and it'll have to rise until we climb out of this hole. Ellen, how does that policy support adapt, evolve, as you go from a closed economy to an open one, or one that is slowly reopening? How do you recalibrate the policy effort? Um, so it's a good question, John. I think that, um, th- that some of the support, especially to households, is going to be have to be stepped down. Uh, and so, you know, can you design the $600 weekly supplemental check to step down and fade in the same way we do unemployment benefits as the unemployment rate improves? Um, because you do have to step that down at some point over time. I mean, how much will small businesses have to pay people in order to attract them off of unemployment benefits? Because in 34 states, as we've estimated, people are getting as much, if not more, than when they did work. Uh, and so you're going to have to uppay them in order to get them back in. So that's something that policymakers will have to, to take into account. On the small business side, you know, the demand for those loans will wane over time. We've still got some room here. Um, we've still got about $100 billion or so left in the coffers for those loans, and demand has slowed. And then the credit facilities from the Fed, 
those haven't even been in use yet uh, because they've uh, because they've not been defined and really opened yet. Um, but those have unlimited capacity, and just as things improve, uh, you would see usage of those facilities naturally wane. So, that, so a lot of this is just natural wind down. I think on the unemployment benefits, there's going to have to be a design uh, to that $600 weekly supplemental. We all want to see things improve and improve quickly. Today, when we get these numbers, Ellen, I think we're pretty familiar with the size. As tragic as it is, these are going to be huge job losses when this number comes out. What we don't know a lot about right now is scope, the breadth of the job losses. What are you looking for just in terms of breadth underneath the headline number? So we've seen in the weekly jobless claims that started out that most of the job loss um, were in the the, um, usual suspects. you know, services industries, in this case, very uh, tourism-related industries as well. And it was very concentrated, restaurants, tourism, leisure, and hospitality. Um, but as uh, jobless claims progressed, we saw it start to broaden out across the labor market. So I would, I would uh, want to look at the diffusion index to see how broad spread the declines are, because I think we're going to see it hit across just about every, uh, every industry those still the bulk of it concentrated in those uh, discretionary services uh, related areas. Ellen, initially when the shock first started, people were saying that the job losses were going to be temporary, that it's something different than in the past because this was a manufactured shutdown. As time has gone on, people are revising that and saying it's going to take a long time for these jobs to be brought back into the economy. Where do you stand on that? How many of these job losses have gone from temporary to permanent? So I think by the, so um, good morning, Lisa. It's uh, the, um, uh, you know, it's it's a bit upsetting to talk about these kinds of jobs numbers because there are a lot of people that will have permanent job loss from this. And, you know, we've had more than 30 million jobless claims filed. Um, we think it's reasonable to expect that 10 to 12 million of them could come back by the end of the year. Um, you know, that's not enough. We'd like to get them back to work more quickly. Now, how do we get people back to work at all? Because states will be reopening and there will be a need uh, for some of those jobs uh, to, to come back. Uh, a lot of those have been furloughed, and so they're more they're more connected to the employer. And as those uh, employers open back up, you're going to need labor quickly. That means the folks that you've already trained that can easily walk in the door and start working right away. But there will be an element of, of uh, either permanent job loss here, or it just takes people longer to get back into labor force than we previously thought. Some of that is because the phased reopening will be very gradual. Um, but also our biotechnology uh, analysts are now pointing out that, you know, the, the U.S., unlike other countries, you know, states have been reopening when cases are still rising. Um, and so unlike most countries that have had strict lockdowns, the U.S. has plateaued at its peak in daily new cases without any sustained decline. And so if, if that dynamic continues, then the reopening will be even uh, uh phased in an even weaker pace, if you will, a weaker capacity than we than we had thought. So these are all things that are going to constantly adjust these expectations around uh, the labor market. I think so, in the, if, if I could say, just say, I think in the short term here, we can get some really upward surprising bounces in the data just because you're going from very little activity to some activity, and that can look explosive on a month-over-month change. But it's really the path after that that's going to be fairly shallow. Ellen, just real quick here, which industries do you expect the job losses to be most permanent? 
Well, I think that that certainly um, tourism, um, energy, uh, you know, uh, restaurants, you know, those are areas where the jobs losses will uh, uh, you may as well consider them um, permanent. And when you think about recovery across the nation, state by state, look for states with more diverse industries to recover more quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need that. You can't be a state that's heavily uh, concentrated it with jobs in tourism or jobs in energy. Um, it, it's going to weigh on All your right. state uh, GDP for longer. Now the history of this. Watch New Jersey. Ellen Zetner with us with Morgan Stanley. Thank you uh, so much. Right now, as we look at this jobs report, try to synthesize it into the markets where we see yields sustain ever lower, as we saw yesterday. Jeffrey Rosenberg joins. He is with uh, BlackRock. Jeff, I want to take the mix of this shocking report. I guess it's better than the gloom that was expected, but I really don't want to sell that to you right now, Jeff. We have to bring it over to yields. Why did yields come in yesterday, and is it just a gaming of a crushingly difficult labor market? Yeah. Thanks, Tom. Um, yeah, I think it's hard to I- I- interpret a lot of those moves, uh, you know, under their normal economic um, reaction function because you have so much of the Fed and supply interacting as as kind of the the major drivers. You know, we're we're about to embark on a historic expansion of debt issuance uh, and a historic expansion of the Fed effectively taking down that debt issuance to make sure that the financing rates are, are, are not disruptive. So, you know, it's, you know, your question is, you know, what's the, what's the rate moves telling us? Uh, it, it's really hard to parcel out the, the, this kind of very unique technicals from, say, some of the numbers uh, that, we, that we normally would look at. All right, Jeff, let's, let's talk uh, more about this jobs report, the worst jobs report in American history. Digging a little bit more into it, it does appear that as feared, the job losses were widespread. The leisure and hospitality, retail, healthcare, professional, manufacturing, construction, information, these millions of job losses. And then also we saw the wage gains pointing to a disproportionate amount of job cuts at the lower end of the income spectrum. I'm wondering from your perspective, given this dynamic of the layoffs, what does that say about the path of the recovery ahead? Well, it, it, it confirms what we expected in terms of the distributional impacts of the coronavirus crisis. And, um, it, you know, the, the big issue on a go-forward basis is re-engagement versus reallocation. And I, I, I don't have all the, uh, the data in front of me yet. Uh, to, there's, there's some things we can tease out from this report that will, that will help to, to, to uh, answer that. But, but that's really going to inform the path of the recovery, because if you can reengage your workers, you know, wh- one, of the, one of the things that, that's sort of anomalous about this report is the unemployment rate. There's a note from the BLS saying, you know, th- there's there's a misclassification going on. And if you, if you classified yourself um, as employed but not at work because of the corona crisis, you know, that's understating the unemployment rate by about five percentage points. That, that's kind of a technical issue, but that, that's, a, that's a kind of a, a good thing, right? That's what we want to feel. We're, we're still employed, uh, but we just can't work because of the coronavirus. And it really gets to the heart of this notion of, you know, is this a temporary dislocation 
or is it or is it permanent? So reengagement is about temporary. That's a faster recovery. Reallocation is no, my job is gone and it's not coming back. I have to reallocate somewhere else in the economy. That's a, a much more uh, longer term process filled with lots of frictions and and it slows the process down. Um, that's what we're we're, we're going to debate, and and I think the impact on on the lower end is is really going to be focused on do those jobs come back? Jeff, the market seems to be pricing in increasingly a bottoming out of the economic data. People saying this was the worst that we're going to see uh, probably in our lifetimes, uh, possibly in history. But there's a question about a second wave of layoffs. And I've heard a growing number of economists and and market uh, participants talk about this, this idea that the longer that you remove a a big cohort of of the labor market uh, from their jobs, they don't have the discretionary spending. And that will eventually bleed into the higher income jobs, which is starting already. Are you seeing any signs of that? Well, I think it's I think it's early uh, to to say that we're seeing signs of that. I, but I think the sentiment is, is is correct that there is there there is kind of the initial shock. There's an initial recovery, and then there's the what are the longer term implications? Now, part of the thing, of course, that's challenging the longer term implications is we don't know what the path of the virus itself looks like. But even beyond the path of the virus itself, there's the question of well, what is the more kind of permanent reaction? of the economic structure to the crisis. What is the reaction to consumption? What is the reaction to savings rates? What is the reaction to behaviors? So at the macro level, a very kind of right. overly simplistic perspective is, you know, there's a higher savings rate, there's there's more precautionary savings, there's less consumption, and that just overall changes kind of aggregate demand, aggregate okay. activity. But beyond that, there is a much more distributional impact as to how does this affect various sectors. Let me ask a money question, Jeff. I'm sure you're going to get it today. You're going to get it into the weekend. And certainly when you roll out your reports from Monday, can we get the debt genie back in the bottle? I mean, I, I get the rationalization of all this debt buildup, given that, you know, it's a, it's a virus. It's a pandemic. Great. Are you optimistic we can get the debt genie back in the bottle? No, I, I, I think that's. I don't think that's actually a debate right now. Uh, I mean, there's a little bit of a pushback, and there's a question now. Uh, uh, you saw some comments from 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 the House and and, and and some of the congressional leaders about the next wave, and there's a bit of a debate about that because there is some concerns about the debt. But there's the there's the the fiscal the direct fiscal policy, and then there's the expansion of, of the Fed support. Um, we we are really kind of put as secondary the longer term concerns about indebtedness. And this isn't just in the US, this is this sure. is this is globally. So I, I don't think we're putting the debt genie back in the bottle anytime soon. I, I think we're going to be dealing with very high levels of indebtedness and a different structure of monetary policy to help to finance those levels of indebtedness. It's it's almost like, and I think the analogy is is apt, that that we're at war against a virus. And both debt policy and monetary policy are are at wartime settings where you don't really worry about how large the debt to GDP is getting. We'll deal with it after the war. So I think it's secondary at this point. 
We're speaking with Jeff Rosenberg, BlackRock Portfolio Manager of the Systematic Multi-Strategy Fund, a longtime leader in thought and in investment at BlackRock and Bank of America. Jeff, I'd love to get your perspective about the response to this lack of income by corporations. We have seen an increasing number of companies try to borrow money at increasingly high uh, yields just because investors are increasingly unwilling to lend to them. We're seeing that uh, with the likes of, of some of the troubled industries, in particular United Airlines, struggling to raise money. How much does this increase the pain and the length of time that it takes to climb out of this with the idea that these difficult uh, times are being met with additional leverage at high rates for companies where their business models may not return in the same kind of way? So I want to I want to challenge a little bit of the premise of the question that um, there, there's 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 a big distributional impact here. Where, where if you if you focus on some of the very challenged sectors, yes, they are facing much higher rates of financing. But you are also seeing even sectors that are in the heart of uh, COVID crisis concerns getting access to liquidity and getting access to refinancing. And so in, in, in some sense, that's the good news. That's the glass half, glass half full, that the, that the Federal Reserve liquidity interventions are working and investors are lending, yes, in some cases at higher rates uh, and, and certainly at higher spreads. But overall, the access to liquidity for the large company segment ha- has been pretty robust and 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 the liquidity sources of unnecessary default have been forestalled and that's 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 a good news now there's a longer term consideration here which is how much leverage is on the balance sheet how much is the liquidity bridge bridging you to a sustainable level and you're seeing that in the most distressed sectors like retail um, where you're seeing the, the bankruptcies, where, where basically it's very clear you, you can't use debt and increases in leverage to bridge you to a recovery because there isn't a recovery. And that's the shakeout that we're going to see industry, industry, company by company, and the smallest, most overlevered balance sheets will be the most vulnerable, and default rates are absolutely going to rise. But the liquidity interventions here to prevent unnecessary restructurings, unnecessary defaults, purely because of the lack of access to liquidity in financial markets, I think has been a good part of the story. It's part of the financial market healing that you're seeing in, in, in capital markets. Just real quick here, Jeff, I'm wondering, uh, going forward, do you buy this rally that we're seeing in equities? Uh, it, well, you know, do we do we buy the rally that we see in, in, in equities? You know, I, I think that what you saw in equities was – forward-looking. And what you're seeing in equities, again, is forward-looking. However, the markets don't have a great ability, we have to recognize this, in, in predicting where is the virus path going to go. So right now, do I buy it? That's the market consensus right. basically saying it's V-shaped or it's it's checkmark-shaped or you know, got all these different shapes that, that there isn't a, a, a more destructive, disruptive second wave. And and from that vantage point, it reflects what we know. Maybe it reflects <clears throat> optimism. Right. But we have to be clear here that we don't really know where we're going. And certainly if there is a second wave that leads to more shutdowns, leads to more disruption, you, the right. equity market is going to reflect <clears throat> that. But from the vantage point of we are putting 
historic levels of fiscal policy and monetary policy to mitigate the impact, yes, I think the equity market right. is pricing that in correctly. Jeff, thank you so much for the brief. Jeffrey Rosenberg with uh, BlackRock. For our listeners on Bloomberg Radio, our viewers on Bloomberg TV, I'm pleased to say we're joined now outside the White House by Larry Kudlow, National Economic Council Director, on a difficult day with one of the worst payrolls report we've ever seen. Larry, fantastic to catch up with you. As our audience knows, Larry, over the years, you and I have these very energetic back and forth, a little bit of rough and tumble and a few jokes along the way. And I think we have to get the tone right this morning. This is a really tough time. And it's a tough time as a policymaker as well. There is a cost to keeping this economy locked down. There's a cost to opening it too. And Larry, I'd really love your perspective in this moment, how difficult it is to calibrate the right policy response in a moment like this. Well, I just want to say on that, you know, your earlier point, look, this is a tough time, but it's a tough time for everybody in America. There's no question about that. Wherever you work or don't work, it's a tough time. This jobs report today is full of heartbreak. It's full of hardship. Uh, I believe uh, that it will prove to be temporary because I think the pandemic contraction or the contraction uh, in the economy caused by the pandemic, COVID-19, will prove to be temporary and that we are actually coming down the home stretch in terms of reopening the economy. But it's a rough number. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, some of this looks to be uh, temporary layoffs, maybe about three quarters of it. Uh, but that still doesn't necessarily make it any better. People expect to return to jobs. Let's hope that they can return to jobs. Look, we have done President Trump's leadership, Vice President Pence. Uh, we put together enormous, enormous rescue package, uh, cash, liquidity, Federal Reserve, uh, payroll protection. It's a remarkable thing. I was actually adding it up. It's about $9 trillion now. Uh, including the Federal Reserve and uh, what we've done on fiscal policy in the budget. Some of this may have worked. We may have cushioned the decline. That may be part of the story inside these very, very difficult numbers. So we will see how this works, and uh, we will see whether we have to go back. Uh, let's talk about presidential policies in a few moments, because I do believe the second half of this year, according to the CBO and private forecasters, the second half is going to have very significant bounce back in economic growth, and that will head into 2021, which could be a fantastic economic recovery year. We all hope for that, Larry, and I know there's going to be an extra push in Washington to try and see that vision come to life and materialize. There's been a huge collective effort down in Washington, not just the administration. You've worked really well with Democrats as well. The Fed has done its part. I'm trying to understand how the policy effort evolves. Quite clearly, when we're shut down, you don't stimulate the economy, you offer aid. When we reopen, that's the time to stimulate. How do you see the policy effort changing in the months to come, adapting, Larry? Um, well, you know, I'm not here to negotiate, but I will simply say this. President Trump has had a set of policies that worked very well before this pandemic, the first three years plus, and indeed, in January and February, the economy was growing at 3% or better. Um, I think that he wants to extend a lot of the ideas. He wants this to be a free enterprise economy. He wants to reward people for their success and their initiative and their efforts. As you know, he has talked about from time to time, talked or tweeted about payroll 
tax holidays. He's talked about capital gains taxes. He's talked about tourism, restaurants, traveling uh, deductions that might work. We've talked about capital business expensing. For example, there are going to be a lot of COVID-related adjustments, whether you're a large factory in Detroit or whether you're a small restaurant uh, in a small town in the heartland. All of that, if you ask me, safety first here as we reopen, all of that, every nickel of that should be completely expensed, 100% deduction, so people uh, won't have to pay extra for that and open the door. We've talked about fair trade agreements. We will continue. We've talked about onshoring. We will continue that. I think a lot of people have learned we probably went way too far in our offshoring of factories and uh, either manufacturing or pharmaceuticals. Uh, President Trump has talked about making it much easier easier to come back home to America. So that's a smattering of the policy ideas that he has put out there. Um, we haven't begun to negotiate with the Hill. That will come in due course. We've had a bit of a pause. Uh, we're going to take a look at how the situation is. May is a reopening month, Jonathan. It'll spill over into June yep. in phases. We've seen the federal guidelines have come down. Now the states are doing the same. Uh, we had Governor Abbott of Texas yesterday. Uh, I've been in a lot of meetings with the president and the governors. All that's moving ahead in phases. That's a big plus for the economy. We have to open safely and then get people back to work. And I think the temporary layoffs show that they will go back to work. And then we have to move ahead and make sure that the incentive structure of this economy remains intact so we can have the blue collar boom that we had, so we can have the entrepreneurship, so we can have the fair trade and the energy independence. These are Trumpian themes. And I think uh, that's where the president's going to move. I know you want to talk about trade, Larry. I'm going to get to that in just a second. When it comes to reopening, I want to understand, and I know you're an optimistic man, whether you've done any contingency planning for a second wave and another shutdown. Are you doing that contingency planning now? Uh, yes, we are, as a matter of fact. It's a subject that comes up. Uh, I'm not going to go into details outside my lane. I have talked to Ambassador uh, Burks on that, uh, Dr. Fauci, and uh, Vice President Trump's uh, terrific team uh, that he's assembled. Uh, I will tell you this without naming names, but one of the senior people on that group, I asked that person, what happens, you know, right now the virus numbers are flattening out. That is a really good thing. That means we can reopen this economy. So I asked this person, what happens if you get a, a jump back up in the virus numbers? And the response was simply, look, we won't have to reshut down because, first of all, we know more, we have more experience, and second of all, we are much better equipped with the right tools. I mean, President Trump deserves some credit for putting together a massive infrastructure, uh, whether it's testing or face masks or gowns or whatever, running the whole gamut. So I don't want to dwell on the worst case because I am an optimist. I think that the governors and the mayors are very well aware of the safety needs as we reopen. But when we do reopen, that is going to give this economy a tremendous boost. And we will see that uh, in the summer and autumn quarters and spilling into 2021. 2021 could be a fabulous year if we keep the right policies in place. Larry, I hope that's the case. I truly do. I know you want to talk about trade and we've only got a few minutes left, so let me give you the opportunity to do so. 
When it comes to the administration's trade stance, you just mentioned supply chain repatriation. Will you actively be looking to provide aid to companies that repatriate their supply chains? Uh, yes, I think we will do it by creating incentives. It's not a matter of punishing, it's a matter of incentivizing. I don't want to go into details, but onshoring is a very important theme. Uh, come back to America. I think we've learned uh, too much emphasis on supply chains overseas. Too much emphasis is not safe and not reliable and uh, not good business practices. Again, I don't want to unveil or get ahead of our own policy process, but the president is very keen on onshoring. There are many ways to do that. Are you rethinking again your relationship with the Chinese Communist Party? Well, I don't think we ever stop thinking about it, but all I'll say is this. Um, first of all, as you know from reports today, uh, Ambassador Lighthizer, Secretary Mnuchin met with um, uh, Vice Premier uh, Liu He of China. Uh, it was a very constructive meeting. Uh, the printout, the communique, if you will, was very positive. Uh, China continues to tell us that they have every intention of um, meeting the requirements and the implementations of the deal that was signed formally uh, last winter. Seems like a thousand years ago, but it was actually only a couple of months ago. They're a little bit behind on commodity purchases. That may be a function, of course, of market and economic conditions. But Liu He said they are pledged to continue, including, I might add, uh, remedies for um, uh, intellectual property theft and related measures. So those talks seem to go well and were constructive. However, the Chinese relationship is very complex. And we know that the virus originated in China. We are investigating, we, the U.S. government, the intelligence agencies, National Security Council, State Department, etc., are carefully investigating what happened and what didn't happen, what may have happened and what actually happened. Uh, China has been not transparent. Uh, a lot of people are concerned. I saw this. Uh, with the president at the G7 video teleconference meeting a couple of weeks ago when the other world yeah. leaders felt the same way. They will be held accountable, Jonathan. They will be held accountable uh, when the final studies are in. All I can say uh, this morning is the trade relationship, and it's going to be a pretty good deal. A lot of exports going to come out of that when the economies recover. The trade relationship appears to be on track. Sounds a lot like a lot of talk, Larry. I've heard a lot of talk over the last week about this, about holding China accountable. Can we talk about accountability? How does the United States hold China accountable? By doing what? Uh, Jonathan, I don't want to disappoint you or create otherwise emotional upset, but I'm not going into details about that. This is uh, national security stuff, and we'll just have to leave it uh, at that. I understand that. I understand that. It's a really delicate topic. But to round things out, quite clearly, the United States and other countries, for that matter, as well, do not trust the Chinese Communist Party. So I'm not sure how much weight we should put on a statement released by USTR overnight about working towards this phase one agreement, because quite clearly, the United States is looking to hold China accountable. How can I reconcile those two things? Two countries working on a phase one trade deal, two countries that don't trust each other, and one country that wants to punish the other. Uh, without accepting your premises there, uh, you put out quite a lot. I don't want to go there. I will just say 
the relationship with China is always a complex relationship. It covers trade. It covers other economic matters. It covers national security matters. It covers espionage matters. It covers cyber uh, security matters or the lack thereof. It covers onshoring and offshoring matters. It's always a very complex uh, uh, relationship. Um, problems in one end doesn't necessarily mean everything stops. But President Trump has said any number of times that they will be held accountable. We continue to investigate the problems regarding uh, the coronavirus and the lack of transparency. We're trying to get to the bottom of what actually happened in China. Those efforts are ongoing. And um, I believe the president in the Oval Office yesterday said in the next couple of weeks we'll probably have a lot more information to share. And Larry, I look forward to getting the answers and more clarity from you. Larry, can I just say thank you for the compassion this morning for a difficult time for a lot of people without a job. Larry Kudlow, I appreciate your time and I hope you and yours are doing well. Larry Kudlow there, the National Economic Council Director from the White House. It is an historic day of news flow, no question about that. And of course, the backdrop is a pandemic. With us now, Andrew Pekosh with Johns Hopkins University and the Bloomberg School of Public Health. I should point out that the uh, philanthropist of the School of Public Health is Michael Bloomberg, the founder of Bloomberg LP, and of course, his television and radio operation as well. He has donated to his Johns Hopkins University. Andrew Pekosh, I want to step back. I remember crystal clear the path from Jonas Salk to Dr. Sabin in about 1961, 63, and those little pink drops that were a polio vaccine. When we get a vaccine for this horrific virus, is that what it's going to be like? We're all going to line up and get drops in our mouth? Well, you know, it's really difficult to predict the future, but I would imagine that um, we are going to get um, a massive vaccination program going in place. The vaccines that are currently um, in the lead in the pipeline um, are ones that are going to be given by injection. Um, and so, um, so, so I think it'll be a little bit different from the polio pipeline. But I do think that um, everything looks like... Um, um, Vaccines are going to be the game changer here, um, and uh, once those things get online, uh, there'll be massive uh, plans to initiate vaccination campaigns across the country and, in fact, across the world. What is your best practice to get to that miracle point? Well, you know, things have been moving forward at light speed when it comes to vaccine uh, 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 testing. Um, just this week, the um, uh, FDA and the NIH gave approval to move into the second phase of vaccine uh, testing with a number of the vaccine candidates. Um, the first phase was just the safety testing. I haven't seen that data yet, but I assume since they've been approved to go into the second phase that the safety data has come up looking really good. Um, and now the second phase is going to be the critical one where they really start to look at how those vaccines are functioning. Are they making the right immune responses that we predict would protect people from infection? Good morning to you, Andrew. Let me ask you about the mobile technologies that many countries are employing to try and get us out of lockdown and to reopen economies. Here in the UK, I'm talking to you from London, and by the middle of this month, there is a hope that there will be wide use of an app that 
if it's taken up sufficiently, would, would be able to help in that, in that endeavour. How excited is the medical community about this as a way of fighting the virus? Well, you know, the mobile apps are going to be a way for us to really do incredibly effective uh, contact tracing, meaning once we find an infected individual, that's going to be an objective, independent way to try to identify where that person has been and who might have come in contact with them. And for that recovery phase of this uh, uh, pandemic, that's going to be the critical way that we're going to use to try to minimize the number of cases. Of course, there are some implications in terms of privacy, and uh, so some people are feeling a little bit um, leery about this technology. But when it comes to just straightforward being able to track individuals and, <clears throat> and therefore slow down the infection spread, it's going to be an incredibly useful tool uh, for that purpose. Well, Andrew Pekosh, to you and all of you at Johns Hopkins University, thank you for your perspective each day. Dr. Pekosh with the Bloomberg School of Public Health at JHU. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.